Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch, an important episode and one that I've been trying to line up for many weeks. So before I kick it off, I want you to know that whenever I produce any podcast, my lens is always what value can this information bring to you? Can it solve a current problem or prevent one, most importantly, from happening in the future? And one that will save you from time, money, and in this case, many months and years of pain. Uh, Not many people know this, but at Upgrade Your Life 2020 in January, I was in a lot of pain on stage. Uh, You know, I had been battling a hip injury for nine months. And, um, you know, some of you would know that I've been a long distance runner for many years. And four years ago, I started high intensity interval training in the gym, team training, uh, so I could get stronger and consequently get faster. And, you know, I, I, at the time I thought I was bulletproof and but then I got injured. For the first time in my life, I had a chronic injury and I stopped running. And for a person who's very active, let me tell you, the inability to exercise really got to me mentally. I was in a very bad mental state. Uh, so much so I had to, you know, write in my journal, you know, continuously throughout the day just to talk myself out of that funk that we get into. I saw heaps of specialists. I saw many therapists, physios, chiros, acupuncturists. You name it, I did it. But, you know, after six, seven months, I had no clarity. The pain persisted. And I realized that for the most part, the medical profession treat the symptoms and never really tell you what the problem is. Then I met a gentleman actually at Upgrade Your Life, but I met you before uh, Upgrade Your Life, who changed everything I knew about exercise, movement, and how the body works. And uh, he's taught me to become an expert, you know, in the way my body moves. And I want you to know on that point that whether you run a business, uh, you have a relationship, or you exercise, you need to be the expert. You need to be continuously learning you know, reading books, listening to podcasts, visiting, you know, experts in their field because you cannot outsource, you know, these responsibilities and the body is no different. So, uh, you know, he taught me that movement is medicine, but only if it's done right. He also taught me how the mind-body connection uh, work that can either, well, that can either work for you or against you. So on that note, my guest today is Luke Akuri, a sports chiropractor and accredited exercise physiologist. Uh, but honestly, you cannot put a label on this man, uh, and I don't like labels. So with me, he has used psychology, meditation, visualization, physiotherapy, massage therapy, movement, exercise therapy, you name it. And uh, finally, he has me exercising again and getting stronger bit by bit. And the biggest lesson he taught me is that all bodies are shaped different and that much of the universal exercise exercises performed in gyms and in circuit training can be very harmful, which is why I'm bringing you this episode, because I want you to avoid what I went through. So I urge you to listen because it really has a potential to prevent injuries, save you time and many months of seeing therapists and money, of course. 
On that note, Luke, welcome to our High Branch community. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, lovely introduction, mate. Thanks for having me. I know, <laughs> I know we've been trying to organise these for a while and yes. finally... Since finally January. Really? Yes, since January. We've had the COVID-19 uh, pause, there you go. as they're calling it now, the life pause. So uh, Luke has a Bachelor of Science degree, uh, majoring in exercise science and also a master's in chiropractic from Macquarie University where you also taught between 2010 and 2016. Mm -hmm. You were part of the teaching staff where you taught um, students sports medicine, urology, orthopedics, rehabilitation. You are also accredited in uh, ART, which is active release technique, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, DNS. Mm -hmm. And these are all things you've used with me. You're very good at also screening, um, you know, functional movements like running. So you're also a running coach and um, you're accredited with selective functional movement assessment or SFMA. And uh, some of these things I'm keen to find out more about, but uh, um, the other ones are Titleist Performance. Uh, you're accredited with the Titleist Performance Institute. And you hold professional memberships with Sports Medicine Australia, Sports Chiropractic Australia, and the International Society of Clinical Rehab Specialists. And, of course, you have your own clinic in Potts Point in Sydney called KC Sports Cairo. You know, it's not often when someone reads a, reads a bio on ourselves that we realise we've done a lot of stuff in our life. So, Luke, really thank you very much. I know you're in high demand, and I also want to shout out to um, Angelo Campagnolo, who's introduced me to you. Yeah, sure. Because he said to me, look, if no one can fix you, then this man can. And you've taught me a lot about respecting the body and body mechanics. Mm -hmm. And this is something my wife is really interested in uh, when it comes to her equestrian world. In the equestrian world, you know, people know so much about the body mechanics, how the horse moves. And I can't help but think everything you've taught me, there's so many parallels between what goes on in the equestrian world and what you do for humans, which is an incredible parallel. But I've learned that exercise is a double-edged sword. It can either liberate you or wreck you. Mm -hmm. So in this era of fitness revolution, everyone's just about signed up to the gyms. Gyms are popping up everywhere. Do you think this is doing more harm than good? I think the intention is that it's a very good thing of what's happened in the past couple of years, particularly in the last 15 years, uh, even more so in the past 10 years. Um, if you really have a look where hit, the hit uh, craze started as well, uh, it's quite topical at the moment, but CrossFit, uh, when that was introduced yeah. um, just over 10, 11 years ago now, that really kicked off this group fitness environment. Um, to answer your question, look, if we look at exercise just as stress adaptation, and that's all it is, it's just termed exercise. So we deem exercise, it's basically anything you do to get out there, be active and try and improve yourself. So if we look at exercise for what it is, it's just stressing our body. Now, so from that standpoint, it's not necessarily a bad thing because everything that happens throughout our life, whether it's through our body, education, business, we evolve through stress adaptation. Yes. The only issue I perceive at the moment with the way the fitness craze is going, and it is slowing down a little bit, is that more isn't more. So what I mean by that is a lot of people are doing group fitness classes or these high-intensity interval training classes, and what they're, over, what they're ultimately doing is stressing their body to a point but not giving themselves time to recover. Now, there's great facilities out there who now involve more recovery strategies and things like that, but it's trying to get this balance right. It's the same type of thing that if... Uh, if you just worked 12, 14, 18 hours a day, yeah. then eventually your work will shut down, your business shuts down, 
etc. Because you're fatigued, you're burnt out, etc. Same thing happens with physical activity as well. Just because walking is good for us doesn't mean we're going to go for a marathon walk every day. Yep. So more yep. isn't more. So from, from that aspect, I think uh, and it, there is a lot of positive in it. Yep. But at the same time, we have to be very careful with balance um, in our day-to-day activity, like, like what you talk about um, with, with the um, eight, eight areas of holistic living. Yep. Is that if we just focus on one area, then the other trees or the other areas don't get watered as much. Yes. So they start to break down. We have to think about our body in that context is that because we're stressing our bodies physically, we're putting so much emphasis on one aspect that it's probably breaking down other areas as well. And I've treated a lot of, uh, particularly a lot of athletes in my time. Um, and it's interesting to see the emotional connection, particularly with their relationships. So when you start treating their partners, yes, you can start seeing a, a, almost a shutdown in their relationships because a lot of the athlete's mentality is, I need to be completely focused on my sport. I need to be focused on my training. Yes. Very, yes. very focused, which removes focus from other areas of their life as well, which can be harming. And we'll talk about that, I guess, when we start talking about injuries and injury management. Well, I'm starting to think that, um, like, okay, there's a difference between being fit and being healthy. And there are a lot of athletes now that are reaching their 60s with busted up ankles, knees, hips, lower back, and they get to that age and then they can't train anymore, right? They're reduced to walking, Mm -hmm. limping. Now, is exercise worth it? if it's going to lead to that because there are a lot of people at the moment and I, look don't get me wrong i love david goggins but for me his message is all about you know mental and emotional resilience rather than exercising yourself to to the grave right mm-hmm. but a lot of people are misinterpreting what he says and are putting their bodies through you know uh they're not respecting the fact that their bodies if they break sometimes it's not easy to reverse mm-hmm. and they break for good so you can be healthy and fit for 10 years. You get an injury. Suddenly, the last 30 years of your life, is you go downhill. Because if you can't move, your health deteriorates. Your muscle mass deteriorates. Your, your brain function deteriorates. Even your hearing deteriorates. Because right. movement is an important part of brain function. So is it worth it? Is it really worth it? <laughs> and I'm asking this question because I, if I could go back, I would not... I would not have done high-intensity interval training. I would not, would not have done some of the movements as well. And we'll get into that. Some yeah, of the, sure. I, I want you to highlight some of the movements that are especially um, you should, people should be cautious about. Mm. But overall, do you think exercise is worth it or should people just walk? I mean, our ancestors just walked. Right? Uh, in a word, yeah. I think uh, I'm going to go straight down the middle. Well, I'm not going to sit on the fence here. Yep. Is it worth it? Yes. Okay. But let me explain why. Exercise is one of those beautiful things where you can experience joy. Yeah. All of your emotions you can experience in the sporting arena. When you train, when you go and you head to the gym and you lift a 1RM uh, back squat or a deadlift or a bench press or you achieve something you otherwise thought you couldn't, like a marathon or an ultra marathon. Yes. And if you talk to any athlete who's ever won a gold medal and then ask them afterwards when their body's broken... Was it worth it? Everyone says yes. Because the emotional high is so big. Yes. And, I mean, this is coming from a personal place, is that I think about the amount of representative sport I did 
as a kid. And then I, you know, was being paid to play soccer at a certain point, broke my ankle. Would I have changed anything? No, because I got to experience that emotional high while I was doing it. But with the knowledge that I have now, then I'll go back and I'll say, it's not so much exercise is the issue or the, the type of the exercise is the issue. It's the exercise we're not prepared for which becomes the issue. Yes, but a lot of people are not prepared for. Right. So yep. then we have to educate people and say, let's say, for example, running. Uh, with all the isolation, running became the go-to. Yeah. I've had a few talks on this at the moment and we'll see an increase in running injuries. Uh, it could be anything like my knee started hurting again, my back started hurting again. Um, and I've always spruiked that it's the, it's the movement you're not prepared for, which is what will cause concern. Um, so it's not so much running is the issue now or a history of running is the issue as the lack of preparation to run or even the lack of recovery following running. Right, okay. Yep. So um, it's not to shut down. Should we all just be walking? I think we all should be walking anyway because it's the most primitive pattern we have. It's the most reflexive pattern we have in our body. You is it the best exercise for people who just don't want to go to the gym? Yeah, look, I mean, if people don't want to go and train and lift yeah. weights and do HIIT classes, don't do it. Um, there is no one great way to train. And we never want people to feel like they're pressured to have to go to a gym and train or you're pressured to be a runner or you're pressured to lift weight or whatever it might be or to play sport. Yes. Some people aren't geared that way. And they might be physically uh, or they, they might be the best athlete in the world. But if their emotional driver isn't towards being athletic, don't push it. And walking is a beautiful thing that we can all do. We all, well, most of us can do it from a very young age. We're never really taught how to walk. We, mm. we just do it. We've all got our own way of walking. Um, is it a great exercise? It's the most perfect exercise you can do without equipment. Low force, uh, great for cardiovascular um, training as well. Great for mental health. So if you're one of those people who are geared more towards, look, I don't want to get in the gym, I don't want to be in exercise gear all the time, yes. go for a walk. And you can challenge yourself by changing terrain you're walking on, bushwalking, hills, stairs. So if you're looking for more stress adaptation or more stress, just change the way you're walking, throw a pack on your back, etc. You like uh, stairs and hill walking, don't Love you? Love them. Okay, what does it do for us? The thing I like about stairs is it changes the angle at which we run at. Right. So if you're running... Um, Think about everyone wants to go to, to the gym and train their glutes. Yes. So we do exercises that move us in what we call the sagittal plane, so flexion, extension, like a deadlift. Think about a deadlift or a good morning, for those who know what a good morning is. When we start to take our trunk forward, we take our centre of mass forward, so we don't fall over, the back line has to now switch on, which means that if you're now running upstairs, we have to angle our body forward so we don't fall backwards. Yes. Which means automatically, if we've got a runner in the clinic and they find it quite hard to activate the glutes as they're running, we used to say only lean forward from your ankles. Now we know that if we have to activate their glutes a little bit more, we need them to break at the hip a little bit more. So lean forward from your hip a little bit more. By walking upstairs or hitting um, hills, for example, mm. it automatically leans you forward a little bit more. So it's good to lean forward then. For hills and stairs, you have to. Otherwise, you're going to okay. fall backwards. So it's all right. about, think about it from a standpoint, and if I can digress a little bit, we need to understand that in life, we're only born with two fears. Everything else is a learnt fear. Yes. Well, it's gifted to us from our parents mm. or whoever wants to share fears with us. So we're born with the fear of loud noises and the fear of falling, which is more important in this case. Yes. Yeah. Um, from a young child, 
we're on our tummies, we're on our sides, we're on our back. We move for emotional need. So for example, our eyes integrate into our nervous system at about six weeks of age. Before that, parents who are having a look at their kid's eyes are concerned because their eyes are moving around their head and they yes. think their kids have a visual issue. Yeah. But at about six weeks of age, these extraocular muscles around their eyes start uh, becoming more coordinated. Now they can move their eyes for emotional need. What I mean by that is mum or dad walks in the room and they're looking at mum or dad because they're hungry and they want comfort, etc. You'll see where I'm going with this, so just yes. hang with me. Yes. Then at about three months of age, the kid will then be put on their tummy and they go into what we call tummy time. Why is tummy time so important? Because at this point we start learning how to pick our head up. It's the first type of extension pattern we learn is how to hold up this big bowling ball that we call the head. And particularly for a kid, the, the head size is massive compared to the trunk. Yes, yes. Now this is weight training for a child, right? Yes. Now this happens in our mid-back. The area between our shoulder blades becomes very, very important to be the stable and the strong area to support our head. Think about office workers with their head forward all the time and they come in with recurrently stiff necks. Yes. You're like, might not be your neck. Your neck's working really hard. It could be mid-back. So as we start to grow, we start becoming more upright. We learn how to roll. We learn how to get up into a crawling position. Mm -hmm. So on all fours, we learn how to get up in a tripod. So three-point contact, hand up on the table. We stand up, we side shuffle across a a low boy. Mm -hmm. Then we learn how to stand on our own. Then we get to walk. All of this happens not by chance, it's because our nervous system goes from a flexion-based state. So think about a stress response, think about people who are anxious, we all go back into a flexion-based response. So flexion is where you're sort of caving in, right. ca- almost cowering. Right. Right, yeah. Uh, think so, about... So you get uh, shorter, you, you want to roll up into a ball. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And this is our body's way of saying, you need to protect. Yes, Whenever there's uh, stress in our life that we can't manage, our body will always go back to the most primitive part of our brain. To put into context of someone who suffered a stroke, for example, it just means that we go back to more of the primitive part of the body where we have what we call upper motor neuron lesions, which means now if you look at someone who's sustained a stroke, their elbow is held in a tightly flexed position, their hand's almost wrapped up or is wrapped up into a fist, sometimes you'll see the thumb tucked into the fist as well, called a cortical fist. Now, if you, uh, for anyone who suffers anxiety and has had an anxiety attack, a severe one, you'll notice that your biceps start to cramp up, your hands start to cramp up, and everything curls back in, right? Right, right, yep. Now, this is coming back into what we call this physiological flexion-based response. So as we start to grow and we start to stand up more, now we're starting to challenge systems, which is going to come back to why we run up hills, but we start to challenge systems which include visual input, our vestibular, so the inner ear. So I know you've had guests on here talking about hearing, yes. which involves more the, cochl- uh, the cochlea. Yep. <laughs> Forward and slip. Um, then you've got the, the vestibular apparatus, a part of that, which is made up of five different parts. So you've got the semicircular canals. So think about a 3D image, so X, Y, and Z axes. So anytime we have rotational movement in our head, we've got these areas picking up movement, which tell us where we are in space. Then you've got other um, systems in there as well, which pick up vertical and horizontal accelerations. So if you're in a car and someone puts their foot down, you know you're moving even if your eyes are still because you can feel this acceleration through this part of the vestibular apparatus as well. This is perfectly formed before you're even born. This is why we like being rocked as kids. This is why we enjoy being in hammocks and rocking and being on a rocking chair. It's calming for us, for some people. So we've got those systems. But as we start to develop as a child, we start developing 
proprioceptive feedback. Proprioceptive is basically where our body is in space, which is governed by all the receptors in our system that tell us when you open and close your arm right now, for the listeners that are sitting in your car listening to this, mm -hmm. when you're in the car, and if you were to close your eyes, don't do it while you're moving at a set of lights, hopefully, <laughs> just move your arm back yeah. and forth. You know exactly where that is. Yes. You don't have to think about where it is. That's proprioception. I'm, I'm doing that now, but yeah. yeah. And you're showing me your biceps. Um, so the reason why this now becomes important is because your body is now geared for survival, which means everything we learn from the ages of a newborn up until about 12, 13, 14 months of age is how to become upright human beings. Yes. To live on two feet without a tail. Most animals that live on two feet have tails. Yes. We don't have that because we've got this beautiful balancing system. Now... The reason why I love hill running so much is because, or even downhill running, it challenges these balance systems, which means your centre of mass now is always being thrown either in front of your feet as if when we're running uphill. Yes. So we have to lean our body weight forward more, which means so we don't fall into the hill, the back line starts to activate more. Think about when you run downhill, what cops are beating more? Is it the hamstrings or the quads? Generally, it's the quads. Quads, yeah. Right? And you get this eccentric loading, this muscular contraction in a lengthening phase, which is really difficult to control uh, initially, but then you learn how to do it. And these are, this is this contraction that shock absorbs, which means if you can't control that, then you, you'll, you'll take this ground reaction force from the ground back up through the body. So that generally speaking, I want people to learn how to obviously run on the flats first, control balance on a flat surface or walk yeah. or, or walk yep then we start challenging it with hills because now you've got to challenge your center of mass then to make it harder because uphill it's more of a concentric contraction shortening muscle fibers uh, this is generally what we do in the gym if you're going to do a bicep curl concentric would be taking the dumbbell from by your side bringing it up to your shoulder the muscle shortens this is what we call a concentric muscle contraction yep mm -hmm. If I was to take that weight back down now, I'm still working the same muscle, I'm still working the bicep, but now it's having to contract eccentrically. This is a lot more taxing on the nervous system, but also we are a lot stronger in that, in, in that muscular contraction, almost 40% stronger than the concentric. Right. So think right. about if you're doing a bench press, yep. it's a lot easier to bring that weight back down than what it is to press it up a lot of the time. Yes, so that's, that's the difference right. between the press up, concentric, down, yep. eccentric. eccentric yep. From a walking standpoint, running standpoint, jumping standpoint it's the eccentric control which is our shock absorption system this is how we mitigate or uh, transfer load throughout all of our joints in the body okay okay so when people ask why do you like stairs so much it's because number one it challenges our balance systems we get to lean forward more which activates more of that extensor chain that we're trying to so hard to train in the gym all the time um, and it also trains us in that concentric muscle contraction first then as we start to go downhill then we can start loading up more eccentric loading as well. So at what age does that, uh, does that really become important? Uh, because if people are sitting a lot, mm -hmm. you know, the average you know, person who works in an office and they get to the age of their you know, mid-50s, sometimes earlier, and sure. start having issues, you know, biomechanical issues, this muscle's not working, the other one's working too hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... At what age do we need to be more wary of that where we should start doing more, you know, hill walking or running or... Yeah, look, I think, um, I think we know that balance starts to becoming hindered. Mm. They'll say, according to the American College of Sports Medicine, when I was studying exercise for 20 years ago, I think now, is that uh, we should start implementing balance programs in all populations from the age of 50 onwards. 
We know that falls in New South Wales alone yeah. um, result in millions in healthcare because falls then lead to other issues like broken noses, broken hips, etc., and things like that. What do you mean by falls? Like just people just fall over? Two reasons why people fall over. Yeah. Two major reasons. If I go from a musculoskeletal strength standpoint rather than a neurological balance yeah. issue. They'll say, or a lot of the research will indicate that, say from around the age of 50, two reasons why people fall over will either be initiating walking, initiating a step, yes, or reaching forward to pick something up. Okay. So yep. if we start having a look, and now <coughs> we're going to go all over the shop in this, so mm. rein me mm. back in if we need to. If we bring this down to one specific area and we talk about the feet, and if we speak directly to all the listeners right now and we say, when was the last time you thought about strength in your feet? And it's something we don't really think about a lot. Now, you can try this uh, if you are standing up at home. And um, if you were to stand with your feet just flat on the ground yes. and imagine you had to lean forward from your ankles, yep. the first muscle to activate that you should feel to stop you from falling forward, and try this now, Sam, if you want. I'm going to do it now. Yep. yep. <laughs> the muscle you should feel first are the muscles of the toes, particularly the big toe. Yes. That's now, exactly what I'm feeling. Yep. Right. So how much weight should that big toe be able to handle relative to your body weight? And the answer is 10%. In men, and I don't ask me why, and I've looked up the research on this, and I can't find why it's different for female to male because it's relative to your body weight here. But for men, it's 10% of your body weight we should be able to hold through our big toe. We can check this through force testing in the clinic. Um, but generally speaking, we can train this just by doing that forward lean test. Now, if you can't hold 10% in that big toe, then what you're looking at is think about every time you toe off when you walk or think about when you're skipping or when you're jumping or when you're walking stairs and you've got to come up over the top of that big toe. Yes. If you don't have that capacity, you need to change the way you move. So it changes your whole biomechanical gait. So for the guys who know me and the guys I've taught, I don't have a foot fetish, but they know that yeah. I will always look at the feet, particularly through the big toe, because generally these are areas we just put in shoes, we forget about, and we've got all these beautiful intrinsic muscles in the feet that we really don't pay attention to. Um, and we can talk about the foot a little bit more, but bringing it back to balance and the reason why falls occur, particularly when we lean forward, is because we, we, we don't really train these muscles in the foot. We especially don't think about the big toe. And then when we start looking at the big toe and we start seeing it move in and people will complain about, I've got a bunion because my mum's got one and my grandmother's got one, now I've got one. And it's not a genetic predisposition. You moved like mum. We've got mirroring neurons where monkey see, monkey do, we move like our parents. And we wear similar clothes to what our parents uh, want us to wear as kids. Yes, yes. So we start adapting common lifestyle habits. Therefore, the amount of mechanical load we start putting through our feet might mimic that of our mothers or our fathers, for example. Wow, never thought of that. Yep. Right? Yeah. So this is the power of watching people Sorry, move kids. Well. I have three kids. I'm apologising. Yeah. <laughs> now I've got to be very careful how I move around the house. We're gone. Yeah. So from a training standpoint, yeah. when should we start implementing foot control? Immediately. Because from a young age as a, as a child, watch a child as they walk on their feet. And the widest part of their foot are their toes. Yes. The narrowest part of most adults' feet are their toes because if, you, if we look down at our shoes right now, you'll see most shoes come to a point or, or start to cave in a little bit towards the toe box where in order to have dexterity, and what I mean by that is if you look at your hand and you can open and close it. Yeah. So if we think now back to the brain, imagine a brain and now think about we've got these little virtual maps in our brain. So we've got a little virtual body in our brain. 
and certain maps uh, or areas are put aside for certain parts of our body. So there's big areas for our eyes, mouth, tongue, hands, feet, other areas that are quite sensitive, like the genitalia. But if we think about the feet, for example, compared to the hand, if I gave you something in your hand right now, you'd be able to tell me, eyes closed, what's in your hand. Yes. Almost down to a hair. It's not smaller, right? Yeah. Because we use them all day long and our dexterity and our pressure receptors are so responsive that we have that function. Now, context to the feet, if I was to put mitts on your hands as a child and you went to play with Lego, my kids love playing with their Lego. If I put mitts on their hands where they didn't have that tactile sense through their fingers, yes, they would eventually lose the ability or they, they would reduce the sensitivity of those touch receptors. So true, so true. Right. And now, we're doing this to our feet. Now we put our feet in hard-soled shoes. And I'm not saying I'm not saying shoes are the enemy, by no means. It's just yeah. like training. We provide stress. We also have to provide recovery and care. So yeah, Sam's taking his shoes off right now as we speak. <laughs> now, I always walk around the office with uh, no shoes, so you just reminded me to take them yeah, off. Come on. So if we start thinking about the feet now, yeah. within the foot alone, we've got 33 joints, 26 bones, 28 if you include the sesamoid bones. So like the patella underneath the big toe, there's two of them. You've got over 200,000 nerve endings in the bottom of your feet. Jeez. Over 200,000 nerve endings. It's huge. Now, for most people, when we ask them to get out of their shoes and then walk around, or if we do a simple test and I ask you to stand barefoot on the ground again, close your eyes and feel where you feel the pressure in your feet right now. A lot of people don't feel a uniform feeling throughout their whole feet. A lot of people will talk about, if you want to try it now, Sam, feel it, but... A lot of people talk about they either hold pressure more towards the heel or they hold pressure towards the outside of the foot. Now, granted, we should have a tripod support, which means imagine the big toe and the knuckle of the big toe, so that first metatarsal. The fifth toe and down towards the heel, it creates like a diamond or a, tri- uh, a triangle. Sorry. So the big toe, the little toe and the heel, it's a and triangle. Like yep. a triangle, right? Yeah. And you want an even distribution just when you're standing there. Now, we've spoken about balance in this vestibular system, proprioceptive and visual input that keep us upright. Our body is constantly swaying. And as we sway, we get, these, we get this innovation of these pressure receptors in the bottom of our feet. Now, let's just say, for example, though, our feet aren't responsive because we haven't trained them or we haven't given them exposure and we haven't um, kept them quite sensitive. Now, we don't want them oversensitive. There's other problems that occur there. But if we haven't continued to train them, now, what we start doing from a stability standpoint, so if we talk about stabilization and when is it important, let's break down the term stability. The way I like to think about stability is it's our ability to perceive and adapt. So if, I, if we're standing up right now and I push you, first of all, you have to perceive your external environment mm-hmm. and the stress placed on your body. Yep. That stress has to be integrated into your nervous system. Signal has to go up to your brain, if not just a single, what we call a monosynaptic reflex, to the spinal cord and back, depending on what stimulus you receive. And then you have to adapt to it. Now, how quickly you adapt is how, how stable you are, right? Okay. So, so if, as you get older, your ability reduces, and that's why you have falls. Not necessarily. It might just be hmm. that as we get older, we start to believe we shouldn't be exercising as hard. We start seeing our life as, do you know what? I'm, I'm a little bit older now. Maybe I should back off certain exercises if anything the the healthiest people i see coming into their clinics over the age of 50 
are people who have continued efficient and effective exercise throughout their whole life. Right. Now, right. I say efficient and effective exercise. That's right, because well, we need to define that. Right. And yeah. that, for me, is that term yeah. functional. Yep. We define function in the practice by, number one, is it efficient <clears throat> and is it effective? And we can talk about that in a sec. But um, when we go back down to the feet mm-hmm. and we talk about the falls now, waking those feet up a little bit more is really, really important. If we can wake up those feet and if, number one, we get that sensory information coming back through to tell us where we are in space, then it's just one more process or one more system that's working really well to tell us, hey, you're taking your body weight a little bit too far forward and I can feel this in the pressure receptors in my feet. I can send a signal down and now I've got that 10% strength through my big toe and the rest of the muscles in the foot in order to accommodate and push me back. At the same rate and time, if you have a visual um, issue going on, so again, context, your eyes account for about 10% of your ability to stay upright when you're on a firm surface. Only 10%. Which means our eyes right now are always lining up with objects to tell us where upright yes. is. Right? Yes. So the horizon, window panes, tables, etc. 20% comes from the vestibular apparatus, the inner ear, and 70% comes from proprioception. So your ability for your feet to feel the feet. So the feet. So feet, hips, so knees, spine, neck, yes. up, upper part of the cervical spine, for example, where people get tight all the time and they just want to stretch their neck all the time is abundant with proprioceptive so, receptors okay so I, i'm now i'm thinking whoever's listening now are thinking okay well what do you want me to do what are the exercises for the mm. feet what do i do <laughs> um you've got me rolling my feet with a ball right so even if it's a tennis ball but i've got like this um the spiky balls and massage balls. uh yeah this really um rubber um oh, i forget the um uh, the material it's made out of but anyway okay. it's, it feels really good it's nice and hard so i roll it in the morning sure when I, as soon as i wake up and yep. then when i get home and kick my shoes off i also roll it before i put my running shoes on and go to, for a walk yeah and that's and that's perfect and um a lot of the exercises we generally will give will it won't be it'll be more so to wake the foot up it won't be to roll the foot out as hard as you can to try and break up adhesions in the foot or to break up calcium deposits or things like that because where we see a lot of people trying to improve foot function yeah is that they go to end range stress adaptation again so they're rolling a ball underneath their foot as hard as they can no it hurts so i back off right yep (laughs) and if it hurts generally if it hurts yeah it's a stress response in the body don't do it because and again for the people wondering but i've been told i should rub a ball really hard because it's breaking down tissue i'll give you some great research here Unless you've got a steamroller, you're not going to break up tissue in the bottom of the foot. So if we think about <laughs> why that's the case, and yeah. to put a figure on it, and I'll, I'll probably get this wrong by about 100 kilograms, but about a, a 850 kilograms is needed to induce 1% of tissue change in compression in the foot, which means unless you've got 850 kilograms of force pushing, pushing down into a ball, you're not going to stretch the tissue in the bottom of your foot. Now, if you put into context of us as human beings on our feet all day, every time you jump yes. or you run and you land on your foot, you're putting, you can put close to seven to eight times your body weight through what we call the plantar aponeurosis, that plantar fascia underneath the bottom of the foot. Yep. So if we could simply stretch that by rolling a ball under it, we'd fall apart. Our bodies aren't that weak. We're quite resilient and our tissues are quite tough. So what else do we do apart from ball rolling? So what am I... I mean, walking, obviously, we mentioned. Walking's but- great. Yep. Um, exposing your feet to different textures 
What about walking barefoot? Walking barefoot on grass. Textures walk- like in the beach. Beach, sand. grass, sand, asphalt. You got kids at home, walk over the Lego. Yep. If you're brave enough. Yep. Um, you don't have to do that. But <laughs> change the textures you're walking on. Yep. Because a lot of the time what we do in everyday life too is we walk on the same textures. If you've got hardwood floors at, floors at home. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And particularly in lockdown when everyone had to stay home, a lot of people were calling me up going, my, my back's hurting. I haven't changed anything. I'm yeah. Like, You've relied on supportive shoes for quite a long time. Now you're barefoot at home, walking on hardwood floors. There's a phase of gait we call the load response phase of gait, where when your foot hits the ground, we have to absorb the load that goes through it. Of course, yeah. Yep, now, yep. Now, now, if you're used to those supportive shoes and that cushion in your shoe that helps to dissipate that force, now you're not wearing them because you're at home and you don't need to. Now you're requiring the function of the foot to help dissipate the force. The knee, the hip, the back all these uh, structures now to help shock absorb. Yeah. Um, so my suggestion for people trying to wake the foot up, and mm-hmm. I can send you a, a video link, Sam, and we... Yeah, we'll put it in yeah. the uh, description. Yeah. One of my favourite ones, um, mm-hmm. as long as you don't uh, mind touching your feet, is we get you to pop your foot up on... So imagine you're sitting in a chair, you pop your left ankle up on your right knee, yep. and you're going to put your fingers between every one of your toes. Okay, right. Can't do that now, but uh, I can imagine. So right. it's just like, yeah, two hands, but right, yeah, that intertwine. They do it with your foot. Yeah. Now, generally, that's the hardest part for most people because most people have their feet or their toes quite tight together. Yeah. So even just to put your fingers between your toes to start with can be quite painful for some people. This shouldn't be painful. Well, I'm going to do it now. Give it a go because I'd be fascinated. <laughs> so, imagine, uh, particularly if you've had a pedicure. Uh, sometimes what you'll get are these little silicon things put between your toes yes. in order to spread your toes out, right? You I've know, Sam, it. you get it I've done all the time. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't but I've seen it. That's yeah. all right, mate. We've got to take care of our toenails. Um, <laughs> yeah. So even just having those supports in there, and there's that actually... Hurts. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Because you've got all those little long bones in there, Yeah. which now need to learn how to separate. So part of these intrinsic stabilizers of the foot are very similar to what we have in the hands that help open and close our fingers. So if you can open and close your fingers quite well, right... We should be able to do that in our toes. Now, I'm not suggesting it should be identical to the hand. That'd be ridiculous because yeah. we use our hands all day. But in our toes, we can generally do what you're doing right now, which is flexing them up and down. But can you spread the toes out? No, I can't. So this will be something we have to work on. So next time we're in the clinic, we'll, we'll work <laughs> on that. So we need to learn how to open and close our toes. Now, that's how do quite... You do that? You... So this is where we put our fingers between our toes. Right. Yeah. And now we spread our fingers, helping our toes to open. So if our body isn't aware of the movement, we have to start assisting that movement. We have to allow in those joint capsules, so big, thick capsules around each of our joints, we have to teach them now that there is movement there and they can move. We just have to make them more familiar with the movement. Once we start with opening and closing them like that, we keep the fingers in there and we can start bending our toes backwards and forwards as well. The idea with this mobility drill or this movement awareness drill is that we keep the fingers really tight in there all the time so the toes are splayed while we do all of these movements as well. You can get things to separate those right. and walk with them on. Sure. So walking barefoot actually splays. I've seen a photo of a person who's never worn shoes. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the same photo. And they have really wide feet. So we're meant to have really wide feet. Think about what we stand on all day. That's our base of support. Yeah. The wider your base of support, the more room your center of mass or, or pressure, which is roughly around our chest, it has more freedom to move. Yep. If you have a look um, 
I vividly remember being in Fiji and, and uh, talking to a few of the locals and the, walking around barefoot and I was having a look at a lot of their feet. Not only are they broad, but what else do you see in a lot of uh, people who don't wear shoes a lot, particularly in the Polynesian islands? Flat-footed. A lot of them are flat-footed. But isn't that a bad thing, to no. be flat-footed? And the, he, herein lies a lot of um, the mindset shift we have to change in our clients. So it's a myth. Oh, here we go. Uh, <laughs> I won't say it's a myth. There are times flat feet can become problematic. It's mm. when we can't control them. Some people have flat feet. Some people have high arches. Yes. Some people have perfect arches according to normative data. Just because we have flat feet don't necessarily create an issue. Some people have flexible flat feet. Some people um, have beautiful arches which don't move at all. So then the question is, let's say, for example, when I look at somebody and they're standing there and we're doing an assessment and um, they've got a perfect arch. But then when I feel that arch, it doesn't move at all. It's quite rigid. That person's going to have a hard time shock absorbing. Now, let's just say this person has a flat foot, but then when they run and jump, they can control all those muscles in their feet. Who's got the problem? Person okay. with the flat foot that can control their foot or the person mm. who has a perceived perfect arch which has no movement in their midfoot, which is really important for shock absorption. Right, right. So now we have to start changing the way we look at movement. Um, and to put into more context, think about posture. And now we think, well, look at that person's posture. It doesn't look great. They're slumping. Uh, they're flexing forward. But then when they run and they jump, it's beautiful. It's majestic. So gone are the days now where I used to spend so much time doing a postural assessment. I start lining things up and going, oh, well, your right shoulder's lower than your left shoulder and your head's a little bit forward of your shoulders. Do I look at it? Yeah, I, I glance over it really quickly because it gives me an insight into the way they hold themselves. Yep. I'm more concerned about how, how do they hold themselves when they move now? Usain Bolt, if anyone has ever seen his x-rays, now, for those who don't know, no, he's got a scoliosis and a, quite a decent scoliosis, so a curvature of the spine. If you just looked at his x-rays alone, and if we thought we'd need to change him, before we knew he was a sprinter, if we didn't know who he, who he was, you'd look at his spine and you'd say, oh man, this guy's not gonna be a great athlete, look at his spine. Some would argue the world's greatest sprinter ever. Yes, right. Yeah, Until absolutely. someone can beat his record. Yeah. There's a lot of athletes who fit that bill, where if you look at their posture, it's not great. But then when they start to move, their movement is adapted to what their task is. So it's task-specific. Right. So now right. when we start looking at feet, I, I don't like to pigeonhole people and say, well, you've got flat feet, therefore you need an orthotic, for example. There's time where we need orthotics. There's times where I think they're too readily handed out. Um, I think we have to start looking at things in the body a little bit more and understand what what's the function of that foot, for example. Is that flat foot, when they're standing still, serving a function? Can they then control that foot when they start moving for whatever task they need to achieve? So if that person now becomes a, uh, I don't know, a, a jumping athlete, a basketball player, and if they can't control that foot that is now perceived as flat when they're still, or if we assess the foot and it's a, quite a weak foot when we assess it, then I'm starting to get concerned about that foot. But I'm not concerned about it when they're still, when we're doing a, a real static structural right. assessment. Right, yep. Yeah. Um, so I've gone off topic. So what were we talking about first? Uh, the foot. Yeah, foot yeah. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with giving our listeners, um, you know, practical stuff that they can start doing tomorrow that's 
realistic and universal uh, because there is this uh, I, I know look I have an office 130 people in my Sydney office and you know there is there is a sense of for those of them who don't work out you know there's a bit of guilt there sure. and some people will go to the gym and do a class and then they'll get injured and they'll say oh, I'm no, never going back there again mm. so you know I want I want to talk about you know what functional effective movement means sure because a lot of gyms and a lot of pts have this standard and they say well everyone has to fit that standard mm-hmm. i'll use myself as an example i was always trying to get myself into a deep squat right mm-hmm. and i was told that is everyone should be able to do a deep squat but that's bs right yep it is. It is. Because that's what that's why it destroyed my, you know, I, I started getting hip impingement. Because of that, I was always trying to do a deep squat, deep lunges. Mm. And um, so how, do you, how does a person know what to do and what not to do when they're doing exercises? Because if you do something repetitively to the body that it's just not designed for yeah. or the, the shape of your body's not right, yeah. then the body's going to bite back. Right? Uh, yeah. 100%. And then you'll go over the edge, which is what happened to me, irritate the nerves, and then it's a really long process right. of recovery from there. So how do you know? Yeah, how do you know? Yeah. Because I want, I want to prevent people from injuring themselves. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. It's as simple as that. Um, th- when we spoke about these uh, group environment Because it never felt right for me. Right. So that's <laughs> okay. kind of like saying, Sam, um, I want you to walk into that wall over and over. Like, but the door's on the left. No, no, forget the door. Walk through the wall. Yeah. And you keep doing it. Why are you doing it? It doesn't feel right. Because I've been told that that is the way to do it. Well, does, is our industry, then is the industry needs to be regulated because yes. exercise is a dangerous weapon if you don't move right, right? Right. For your body type. Sure. Any stress? That's another political question. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're going to put me on the spot, but that's okay. I don't mind this. Um, in essence... Well, it's good for your business because you're getting a lot of people that are, <laughs> that are injured. Yeah, sure. And, and I, I hear a lot of phys- physiotherapists and, and chiros yeah. who say to me, oh, that latest exercise craze is great for my business. It keeps us busy, right? Yeah. I mean, in an ultimate, uh, in my perfect world, I'd rather see people for performance than yes, pain. which is what I'm seeing you for right. now. Yeah. But originally, I came for, <laughs> for pain. For pain. And when we can get people out of that pain and we can teach through... Mm. And the thing I love about what you're doing, Sam, is that education is critical. Yes. And, it, and um, when a lot of people will come to us, and we'll come back to your point in a sec, but when a lot of people come to us, they say it's very different our experience here to where we've gone before. And when I ask them why that isn't, and the common thing is because you don't want me to come back. And I'm like, I want you to come back when the education I've provided you is now uh, gone. Not gone, but you've exceeded what I've taught you. Yes. And now yeah. you want to learn more. Yes. Because the next time you get a back spasm, I don't want you to freak out and get on the phone to me. I want you to manage it. I want you to take control of it. So empowerment. I love that. Empowerment through education. Yes. And to let people know your body is stronger than what you think it is. And that pain is just an indicator. Sometimes, and if we look at the definition of pain, I'm not going to do it verbatim, but a lot of people perceive pain as tissue trauma. I've damaged something because every time I hurt, there's harm. Yes. We have to now consider, yes, that is a case, and that is the case sometimes, but the perception of tissue trauma or the perception of harm generally causes more pain. So the way we perceive things yes. generally causes more issues. 
And we'll talk about that as an emotional health issue. Absolutely, because you got me to do running after a meditation. Remember when I laid down, you took me through a whole visualization meditation. Then I got up and then you said, okay, let's go for a run. And I ran perfectly. Yeah. Because I was in that, you know, my mind had shifted. Yep. It, I came out of that meditation with a, a, a very positive mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And with everyone who you've had, and I know everyone who's involved with the high branch, like Guy Winch and... Um, and a lot of the psychs out there, and they talk about emotional health and how important it is. And there's no way, in my opinion, and the longer I'm in this role, originally really focused on musculoskeletal injuries. What I meant by that was, you know, with your hip, Sam, it was all about treating the TFL and treating the ITB and treating the femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. And when we start looking at nine months after the injury, tissue heals on its own. If you did nothing and you just backed off and unloaded, tissue heals. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the classic thing, how long How long is this going to take? Uh, probably six to 12 weeks. You're going to be safe if you give that advice to anyone, even if you're untrained. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so six to 12 weeks. So the question you had at the start is, why does pain continue to persist? And it comes back to the That's emotional right. health around that as well. And Because um, there could be a lot of people listening now who have chronic pain. The more I, I talk to people, the more I realise they just live with it. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, um, and a lot of the advice people are receiving in chronic pain is, it's in your head. It's in your head. And to those people listening, I want you to know that when people are saying to you, it's in your head, everything we perceive in this world right now, you're sitting at home listening to this or in the car or at work, right now everything that's going on is perceived through your brain. Yes. Some will argue your gut, sending signals to your brain. Yes. Regardless, everything is through the nervous system. Yes. So let's just say, for example, you've had lower back pain. Now, that's just one of these areas that 80, 90% of Australia will experience lower back pain in their, t- in their lifetime. And the thing with it is it's recurrent. So once you've had it, there's a good chance it'll happen again. What we want to teach people is through education and understanding about lower back pain, the more you know about it and the safer you feel through your body being able to manage it, when you do have a recurrence, it's not going to strike you as hard. So always the first episode of lower back pain that hurts the most. Now, if you have chronic pain and people are saying it's in your head, understand this from a good place now. Your brain is trying to protect you. So it's not that your pain isn't real. Your pain is definitely real. Mm -hmm. Pain is a real, real thing that we experience. But we experience it from a safety and survival mechanism. Your body doesn't create pain because it hates you. Your body creates pain because it loves you so much. It's trying to give you a signal. But sometimes that signal is an overbearing mother or father who hugs you to death. (laughs) Good analogy, yep. Yep. What we have to do with those pain signals that uh, some people may be saying it's in your head, we have to turn down that signal. We have to almost bring that hypersensitivity back down to a level that you experienced previously. Yes. To bring it back to what you would perceive as normal. Yeah? Yep, totally, yep. Um, So don't feel disheartened if you are out there in chronic pain. There are a lot of solutions, and sometimes the solution is different, completely different to what you expect it to be. Uh, For example, a lot of people will come in, they've seen multiple practitioners, and this is to no discredit of the medical industry at the moment. A lot of us are very musculoskeletal based. What I mean by that is you come in with lower back pain, we treat the lower back. We rub the lower back, do you get a result? Yes, it's gonna feel amazing. The same way that if a kid falls over and hits their elbow, they run to mum or dad or they run to someone, and mum or dad rubs the elbow and it improves it. And there's a lot of reasons why that occurs. One is touch. Yeah. So you've got an extinction phenomenon that occurs. 
you stimulate certain receptors that's going to downregulate pain in that area, etc. But also that connection with another human being and and knowing that someone knows you're in pain also makes them feel better. Yeah. Right. Yep. So sharing that experience also makes them feel better. Um, so if you are in that state where you are in chronic pain, find someone. My advice to you is find someone who's on your team. Don't f- find someone who creates vertical relationships. Don't find someone who creates a practitioner and a patient role. Create someone or find someone who creates an open environment where it's more of a relationship of trust, um, where you can share what you're feeling. Because a lot of the, uh, and, and again, I'm going to get this figure wrong, but most medical practitioners, when a client, and I'll use the term client because I'm not a massive fan of patient, but when a client starts to talk, we'll interrupt them within seven seconds of the client speaking because we have time restraints, right? Yes. Which means your story now is less important to me because my next client comes in in five to ten minutes. Yes, yes, yes. Which means I need to get through what's really, really important, which Mm. is you expressing emotionally how you're feeling about this ongoing issue. Rather, I just want to have a look at your images. I want to have a look to see whether you can touch your toes. I want to do some orthopedic and neurological examination, which is very important, but not as important as the emotional health around the chronic injury, in my opinion. What are your coping strategies? What are your belief systems on this? Who are your uh, support networks? How do you feel about this? For the people sitting at home who have seen a practitioner over and over, have they ever asked you the question, what do you feel is going on in your body right now? If you didn't have this pain tomorrow, tell me what it is you want to do. I want to know what your emotional driver is to want to get out of this situation. Yes. So it's bringing it back to the emotional drivers of an individual. Yep, yep. Absolutely, Um, yep. So from a practical standpoint, find people who are on your side. You'll generally get a good gist in the first meeting with practitioners. And the other note I'll make there is don't pick a practitioner based on their professional title. That's right. I've learned that. Yeah, because titles mean nothing. Titles right? don't mean much anymore. Yeah, yeah. Now, the title tells me, what the title tells me is that there is a basic education to be a safe practitioner under APRA regulations, Australian Health Practitioner Regulations Authority. Yeah. Great. We need that. Um, for exercise physiologists out there, we aren't yet under that title, but they've got a great organisation called ESSA, and they have a minimum standard as well. Um, so regardless on who you're seeing, you're seeing an individual who has very specific interests. Also, we have to be careful about confirmation biases as well. But um, in, the, in the start, when you're talking about certain techniques I've used, as a younger practitioner, yes, we used a lot of specific techniques. Now we integrate them more and we use more concepts because certain techniques aren't going to work for everybody as well. So if you're going back to the same practitioner or the same trainer and nothing's changing, don't be scared or don't feel like you're letting that person down by saying to them, look, I just don't feel like this relationship is working because it's your body, it's your health. Take con- You need to take yep. control of it. Yep, I'm glad you said that. Yep. And, and there's times people, I, I, classic example, I had a lady in today. I've seen her for a while. We've made great leaps and bounds in certain aspects, but there's another aspect where we aren't improving. My role isn't to keep her there. My role is to help her progress. So I know what my limitations are. The next point of call would be, that's fine. We can keep doing what we're doing. That's improving in another area. But for this other area, I've got a great person who I trust, who I'd love for you to meet. Yeah, and And you did that with myself, didn't you? You introduced me to Eric, uh, who did a HRV assessment on me. And that's when I started seeing the connection between, you know, mindset, heart rate variability, sleep, because 
originally I was taught to look at the issue mm. as a mechanical, right? You've got tight hamstrings from sitting too much and this is, this is why you've got the issue. Sure. Yeah, but it doesn't help you fix the issue. So it was only when I started actually improving my HRV yep. through more sleep, right, and shifting my mindset to see movement as my friend rather than, you know, perceiving it as a harm for my body. Sure. That I started, yeah, feeling stronger about it and the pain isn't there as much. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah. yeah. And there's a great correlation between... In fact, I feel great after the movements. Yeah. yeah. The pain's gone, right? <laughs> and it's like a good night's sleep is sometimes the best thing you can do for your body. Yeah. Taking care of nutrition is sometimes the best thing you can do for your body. Now, imagine if we combine those two things, now at exercise, and look at every other component um, that you talk about. That's right. Yep. It's critical for our health. Yeah. So from a... I mean, this is coming from someone who is so driven towards movement and physical uh, health and, you know, getting people to take care of their bodies is that if you're not taking care of every, every other component in your life and people are coming to me and they're like, Luke, my neck is still sore. And if we come back to our original question about if you are falling and if you've got balance issues, where do we start at your feet or do we start at the calf or the big toe? Where do yes. we start? We have to come back to what governs our body, the nervous system. Yes, that's right. Yep. yep. And if the nervous system isn't working well, mm. These are people who come back with recurrent stiffness, recurrent hamstring tightness. But Luke, I stretch every day. I stretch my hamstrings for a year. I still can't touch my toes. When within 30 seconds, we can show them why they can't touch their toes. And it changes very, very quickly. In most cases, very quickly to the point where they haven't touched their toes in years and then they're down. When put it back into context of balance, their body wants to protect them. So when you lean forward now, what happens? What keeps you upright? The functional role of the hamstring is to upright you. Yep. As to, as to allow you to come back up. Or if you start leaning forward, the back line switches on and all of a sudden, boom, you're, you're tall. Yeah. So if you now start shifting forward and your chest moves in front of your feet and your body says, hang on a sec, I know that one of the two fears I'm built with is falling. Now I perceive that you're falling because of a vestibular system saying you're moving this way, proprioception, visual systems all sending information back that says, dude, we're falling. Yes. Catch me. Hamstrings catch, right? Big toe. Big toe, you're right. Yep. <laughs> this whole posterior chain, this part of the nervous system that develops as we start to learn to upright. Yes. Right? Part in through the cerebellum, all these beautiful areas of the brain. Now, if you go back and you treat it mechanically only and not look at the nervous system, you might be going in a roundabout all the time. Now, will you feel good after stretching your hamstring? Of course you will, because endorphins are released. Yeah. And you downregulate these pain receptors that we feel when we stretch. But are you going to get a lasting result? Well, not if you've got a balance issue, not if your vestibular system's That's not, right. yeah. not great. Yep. So now when we go back to things like um, you perceive falling, and now we're talking about heart rate variability, unless for the listeners who aren't sure what heart rate variability is, HRV, it's a big thing that a lot of people are assessing now. Well, it's massive at the moment, Huge. right? Uh, with athletes, uh, with yep. practitioners. Yep. Everyone's wanting to measure it. Um, and boost it. And, and, and increase it. So, um, because that's, that's when we put our body in a state of healing. Right. So the higher yeah. it comes up, yeah. it's kind of like there's a tug of war between two different parts of our autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is a part of the nervous system in, around the brainstem or in the brainstem, uh, so just above your neck. 
and below the big part of the brain, um, which regulates everything in your body from your heart rate, your breathing, um, you name it. That yes. Everything that occurs that you don't have to think about is regulated here. Yes. So if someone walks in the room right now and they've got an axe, you don't think about panicking. <laughs> it's going to happen quickly. This is the autonomic nervous system sending out that fight, flight, fright response. Yep. This is what we call the sympathetic. This is the accelerator, right? This is where we put our foot down. Then you have that rest and digest, that calming state, the parasympathetic. Yes. Right? So when we start looking at the heart rate variability, it is a measure. And it's a measure between certain parts of the heart rate. I won't go into it too much because Eric, if you, Eric talks about this beautifully, but um, it's the measure between two different parts of your heart rate and it's measured in milliseconds. And the greater the distance, the greater the number, which means your body is better at going from a stressful response to a calming response. That's right. And that's important. That's very important. Very important, yep. Because every time we breathe in and breathe out, we're regulating between these as well. That's right, yep. Breathing in is sympathetic. Out. Is parasympathetic. Right. That's why a lot of breathing techniques ask you to breathe out a lot longer to get you into the parasympathetic. Right, so it's that classic four, seven, eight type of drill. That's right, yep. Breathe in for four, hold for seven, breathe out for eight. Yes. And if you're struggling to go to sleep at night, give this a go. Yes. So it's four seconds in through your nose, hold for seven seconds, breathe out for eight throughout your mouth, and try and repeat this for four to six cycles, and just see how you feel. Oh, now, it chills you out. Chills Start you your out. Morning. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but, the, but the fascinating thing is, if you are geared towards more of that sympathetic state, this can also stress people out, because trying to hold your breath for a certain period of time, there's a reflex which asks us to take another breath. Yes. Even though we don't need oxygen in our system i do it now in lifts right when i'm coming up lifts because of the coronavirus yeah. outbreak so <laughs> i i just hold my breath in a lift till the door opens and i get out yeah but i notice if i'm struggling your body just sends you all these oh my god i'm in a panic right i want to take a breath take a breath so that's not good <laughs> well i mean again it's a survival instinct right it's saves... because wim hof says to do that sometimes breath holding breath uh, holding um yeah is really important knowing that we have more oxygen in our system than what we think we do and we can actually last a hell of a lot longer than what we think we can which is why divers for example yes free divers learn how to pocket and breath hold it's because there's enough oxygen circulating around our system yeah the guys have taken a first aid course we don't have to expire air anymore well you can if you want but it's not as important as pumping the blood around the system that's already in there yes because yeah. it's oxygenated yep yep yeah so um, breathing is just, again, from a practitioner standpoint, and if you want to move well and move better, and if you want to recover well, if you can't breathe, we have to start with breathing before I can change any of your tissue. Because if you start to hyperventilate, now let's, going back to the uh, heart rate variability, right? So we talk about the sympathetic is the gas yep. or the accelerator. The parasympathetic is the brake. Yep. Unfortunately, right now in our way of living with work, um, we generally have our foot on the accelerator way too long throughout the day. Yeah, yeah. It's almost in a cruise control and we're stuck in that. And it's hard to downregulate. And it's hard to hit the brake. Yeah, yeah. Because if we can get there faster, why walk? Yes. We run. If I can get there faster, I'm going to take a car. I'm not going to get public transport. Or I'm not going to walk there. Yes. We want things now. We want things speedy, which means I've got clients who need their phone on them and I'm going to make a rule after my experience today with the client. They need their phone right next to them on the table because things can't wait so they're always in a response where they 
are flighty. They're yes. in sympathetic overdrive all the time. As soon as they hear that buzz on their phone or that vi- even that vibration because they're doing the right thing, turning their phone off, as soon as they feel that vibration, their nervous system kicks in. Kicks yeah. in. Yep. Alarm systems in the morning. Yeah. Automatically puts you into a stressful state. Picking up your phone in the morning automatically puts you in that stressful so state. It's like our body has this built-in intelligence that will heal us, that will you know, sustain us, but we never let it go into that state. Right. That parasympathetic state. So we have to allow it to. Yeah, yep. And yep. we have to learn how to allow that to happen. Thank you for tuning into this week's podcast with my good friend, Luke Curry. Make sure you plug in next week for part two of our body movement series, where we continue to discuss the importance of moving your body and why sleep is ultra important to the movement of your body. Trust me, it's going to be an eye-opener as we discuss the absolute latest research that can prevent a lot of injuries. And also, if you're an athlete or would-be athlete like myself, I hope you recover a lot quicker.